Janet Forrest. Welcome to The Shelves of Yore. Close your eyes and imagine you are standing in a big room surrounded by a pile of 3,000 books. You've been tasked with labeling and shelving all the items so that they can be located with just a few pieces of data. Don't worry, we'll give you two helpers and a cutting edge piece of technology called a typewriter. Oh, and if you don't mind, please follow this recently published numerical method called the Dewey Decimal System. If you get stuck, just refer to the printed manuals that are over there in the corner. Good luck. Today, Reference Library Associate Jim Borzileri and I return to the catalog of 1900 and talk about the heroic effort it took to create it. To help us really understand this logistical feat, we've asked librarian Betsy Tyler, author of the Nantucket Athenaeum, A History, to join us. Printed catalog was the tradition. You print a catalog and then everybody can read it and they know what's there. And so that had been done in 1841 and then again in 1883. And then by 1900, there was a certain element among the board of trustees who still wanted to do another printed catalog, but times had changed and the card catalog had come into being in libraries and it was like the new thing. So the trustees decided to do both. The real innovation was the change in classification. Before, you know, Mariah Mitchell had created this alcove system. A book of history was in maybe alcove three, and then everything in alcove three that was history was arranged by author. And that worked for a small collection. As the collection grew into thousands and thousands of books, that became cumbersome. The library went modern and went with the Dewey Decimal classification, which is a brilliant thing, really. I love the Dewey Decimal classification because it's all of human knowledge from zero to a thousand. So whatever your topic is, it fits into that number system um, because you can use decimals and you can just string those numbers out till you have whatever category you need for any kind of new information. And I think Mariah Mitchell would have loved that, being so mathematically and scientifically inclined herself. I think she would have been a big fan of the Dewey Decimal System. Everything was recatalogued. The cards were typed up for author and for title. And I did look back at the trustees' records, and yes, they did have subject cards. I talked to Jim about this. Wow. I wasn't sure they had subject cards yet, but they did. Just to quickly explain that wow you heard from Jim. Books typically have one title, so one title card, pretty simple. And they have one, maybe two authors, so one, maybe two author cards, not so bad. But a single book might have five or six or even more subject classifications, which meant that Mrs. Sarah Bond, who was hired to classify the 1900 catalog, needed to create an individual card for every subject a book was classified in. Wow is right. In her report to the trustees in 1900, listed the number of cards she had created for author, title, and subject. And there were over 6,000 subject cards. 
she'd been very busy. And I know you've done some research on Sarah Bond that maybe you could share because that's pretty fascinating. Sarah is actually, to do her just, her full name was Sarah Apthorpe Cunningham Bond. Usually her official name when she was listing as herself as a librarian was she'd use her initials, SAC Bond, but it looks like all her friends call her Sally. That much I've been able to figure out. She's got multiple connections to Nantucket. I mean, clearly she was highly qualified. She'd been employed at the Harvard Library. She'd moved up to a couple of positions there. She also had been responsible for the cataloging of the town of Bedford just a few years earlier. So she was brought in as an expert and she had emphatically said, we've got to go with Dewey because there were other options at the time. Something that you mentioned, but I think we want to kind of tease out a bit, is that the other innovation was the fact that the library had to buy a typewriter Mm -hmm. to type up all these cards. And I don't know if that was Mrs. Bond's suggestion or if that was just something that had to happen. But to your point, if she did 6,000 cards, I could see why she would want a typewriter. No kidding. I guess Mariah Mitchell had experimented a bit with a card catalog. I read that. So that would have been handwritten back in the 1850s, 56 or so. But yeah, this new catalog, card catalog, it was all typed. Was it something special beyond just a typical typewriter? Well, it was the first piece of technology that the Athenaeum owned. When I was at the Athenaeum, you know, we discovered it. And there's a picture of it in the history of the Athenaeum that I wrote. It's a little relic of another era. Probably the only modern equivalent would be like the day they bought their first true computer. Because in a way, yeah, it was going to be that that much of a life changing event. Mm -hmm. And the actual furniture, the card catalog cabinet was described as this handsome piece of furniture. They were gorgeous and they were fun to use. You know, it was fun to pull up in that drawer and and flip through those cards. Yeah, we've still got a, a remnant of one in the reference area. And it's like, it's just amazing to look through. Because it's just so much work. First, you have to decide, how am I going to list the author? How am I going to list the title? Which we take for granted, but if you look at the other catalogs, if you had a tale of two cities, they might have it as a tale of two cities, or they might just drop all the articles, and it would be just tale of two cities, and then just put it at the end. So you've got to make those decisions. An authority file. An authority file, exactly. And they weren't always following it, I noticed, in the 1883 catalog. You'd somehow see them. Sometimes the the would be there, and sometimes it wouldn't, and you could never be sure. In terms of doing the work, it just must have been extensive. I mean, you think you take a book, now you've got the book, and the hard part is classifying it. Where in Dewey does this belong? Because sometimes it's going to be easy. Sometimes it could be a bear, depending on where you put that book. And there are some implications for how you do that. No kidding. I just to throw this in, when I was in library school, I took a cataloging course. And the challenge, challenging book that year was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's a great book. Where do you put it? Is it philosophy? Is it a memoir? Is it about motorcycles? You know, and there was this great discussion of, how do you catalog books like this? Yeah. And this was before Clams, like Clams yes. Network and other things. Yep. So I know, you know, for instance, Pam McGrady and Liz Kelly do our cataloging. They can look. So they get a new book. It might be a book that three other libraries already have. So they have a point of reference. Whereas at this point, Ms. Bond would have been doing this from scratch pretty much, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's where the expertise came in, deciding where it goes in Dewey, how to classify it. And yeah, she's flying solo. She can't go do what we knew now, which is, okay, does another library have that book? Where does it end up? Has the Library of Congress already sort of decided where it should go? 
I know there are other systems today, which, you know, now it's more a matter of, okay, I've just got to be in sync unless I've got a really, really strong opinion. But she was sort of, I guess, Betsy inventing it from the ground up in a way, using the expertise she had gained. She wasn't, you know, there was obviously a, a very real method to this. Oh, yeah. There were manuals on how to use, how to classify a book using the Dewey Decimal System. You had to understand how it worked and follow all the little rules and regulations to try to get to that number that made sense. Like you say, at that period, not every library would catalog every book the same way. We have to remember that I think, what, just a few years beforehand, this Frederick Sanford book collection was donated. So that was another thousand volumes. It's like, you know, oh, good. Well, well, these are good books, but now we get to add them to the pile. It was that much more daunting than what they had done before. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that I think the board of trustees reported they were very happy to hear that while they were doing this, they weren't going to have to shut down the library which I think gives you an idea of just how much of an undertaking they understood it was going to be. I mean, this was more than just pick up a book, slap on a tag, you're done. I mean, you'd probably have to spend, you know, if you're lucky, maybe five, 10 minutes per book. I, I wouldn't even be able to guess what the workflow would be. But if you have to sort of think about where this belongs in Dewey, how many subject cards do I have to do? Now I've got to type them out. And then I'm assuming they had to create a separate list that was going to be the manuscript for the actual printed catalog. Right, exactly. Yeah, I can't believe they did it in such a, an expeditious manner. It's a testament to Mrs. Bond's abilities, I think, that it all came together so, so quickly. Everything we were just talking about reminded me of something the Athenaeum's current children's librarian, Leslie Malcolm, said to me in season one, episode six. My very, very first memory of being involved with the Athenaeum was Ellie Coffin and I came. It must have been in the late 90s when the library went online, when it joined the Clams Network. And we came as a barcoding team to barcode the books. But I was pregnant with Gwen then, so I was huge and we would sit by the windows in fiction because of course the building wasn't air conditioned yet. I remember it took us forever to get through biography because we had to look at all the pictures <laughs> in every book, discuss the person, and it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, we had 27 volunteers, I think, who came in. We pulled every book, pulled the cards that went with that book, slapped the barcode on the card, and on the book, and then it was scanned into the CLAM system. It took a long time, but it was a merry group of people who were working on that. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> if you were to put yourself in the shoes of the librarians and the trustees in 1900, what do you think the things they were wrestling with were? Probably funding, you know, always, because, you know, the Athenaeum is still, it's not, it's a public, serves as a public library, but it's still a private library. I, I would say just, are we going to get paid? You know, this is sort of the right. issue. They were struggling. The island was down to 3,000 people. And yet now they're going to be the public library. And sure, there'll be some funding from the town. But at the same time, there are all the reform movements going on. There's all the sense of like, we need to educate our children better. Now you need more books. Now you've got to find a place to put the books. Can we afford to? Here are 50 books. They're all worthy. We can only afford 10. I think those were kind of the things they were grappling with. I may be wrong, but that's sort of the sense I had that there are some really wonderful objects being donated. They just acquired the Sanford collection, as I said earlier, but now they've got to process those. 
I think he gave quite a few paintings as well. So they probably had to make some hard decisions there. It's not like they had a staff of 10 or 12 people. No. You know, there was a library and, and an assistant library. They were lucky to have Mrs. Bond help them, but still, right, I think- she they, was temporary. Even if she was doing the typing in the catalog, someone had to go and get the book. Someone had to help her with it and then put it back in its new location with a new classification. Right, and she taught the librarians to type. That's true. They'd never seen a typewriter. Well, if they had seen a typewriter, it wasn't yeah, something they I mean, used. Yeah. Now, now you get to learn how to type. Always new skills that one needed to keep up. This is when we became a public library. I'm sensing there was a lot of ambivalence around it. Well, it came from the trustees of the Athenaeum because every year they would take a vote about whether they should be a public library. And I know for three years in a row, the vote was no. Nantucket was one of the last towns in the state to have a public library. So there was resistance to that, for sure. Three decades later, in 1931, head librarian Clara Parker would write in her report to the Athenaeum's Board of Trustees. Many years ago, when the subject of a free public library was discussed, a number of people greatly disliked the idea and knew it would not work out well. If they were alive today and could look into the room at a truly busy time, they would certainly agree that a free library is a wonderful thing to have in any city, town, or village. It affords a great deal of pleasure as well as instruction to anyone privileged to use it. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was written, narrated, and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Jim Borzilleri for sharing his research, knowledge, and charming radio voice. Please check the show notes for more information. If you want a closer look into the 1841 and 1900 catalogs, go visit Jim in the Great Hall. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We'd love for you to stop by and say hello. Visit us online at nantucketathenaeum.org. Join us next week to see what else is on the shelves of York.